listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Good morning, everyone. My name is Tom Raleigh, and I will be doing your scripture reading this morning. As some of you may know, I work at Rochester General, and on behalf of Rochester General workers and all healthcare workers in the Rochester area, thank you so much for your love, prayers, and support throughout this time. Our scripture reading for today is Romans 2, verses 1 to 16. I'll be reading from the New Revised Standard Version. Therefore, you have no excuse, whoever you are, when you judge others, for in a passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, are doing the very same things. You say we know that God's judgment on those who do such things is in accordance with truth. Do you imagine, whoever you are, that when you judge those who do such things, and yet do them yourself, you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you not realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But by your hand and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the and on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. For he will repay repay you according to each one's deeds. To those who by patiently doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. While for those who are self-seeking and who obey not the truth but wickedness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be anguish and distress for anyone who does evil, the Jew first, and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first, and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. All those who have sinned apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law, for it is not the the hearers of the law who are righteous in God's sight, but the doers of the law who will be justified. When Gentiles who do not possess the law do instinctively what the law requires these, though not having the law, are a law to themselves. They show what the law requires is written on their hearts, to which their own conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts will accuse or perhaps excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God, through Jesus Christ, will judge the the secret thoughts of all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Tom, for that reading. Uh, Now, as you already know, if you have been keeping up with these online services, we are in the midst of a brand new teaching series on the book of Romans. And we're finally out of chapter one. (laughs) Woohoo! It only only took like, what, three weeks, Um, which really isn't bad when you're working your way through Paul. I mean, this this stuff is dense, but um, we're through chapter one, we're in chapter two, and we will be uh, picking up the pace a little bit from here. Hopefully, hopefully only spending like maybe two weeks on each chapter. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. Um, but before we really dig into our passage, I want to talk to you about the pronoun game. You've probably never heard of the pronoun game before, but I guarantee you've seen it at some point. It's this common trope in like TV shows and movies when a character will use a pronoun instead of someone's actual name. And it serves to keep the other characters in the dark and and build suspense for the audience. You see this sort of thing done all the time on sitcoms, usually played for laughs. Uh, One character will be talking to another character, um, and they use a pronoun, you know, he, she, or they. But the character they're talking to 
doesn't know who they're talking about and they assume they're talking about someone else. You know, it might be the dad talking to the mom about one of the kids, but she thinks it's the other kid and, and a classic mix-up, hilarity ensues, right? That's the pronoun game. You also see this sort of thing done sometimes in horror movies uh, when a character says something really ominous and vague like, uh, he's coming and he's not going to be happy when he gets here. And, you, you know, the, the audience doesn't know who he is. We have no idea. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a monster or, or an alien or an axe murderer. We don't know. But, but this vague use of pronouns builds tension with the audience. That's, that's the real point of the pronoun game. It's sort of this lazy trick used by writers to build suspense with an audience. It is rarely done well. I tell you about the pronoun game, though, because Paul is playing the pronoun game in these opening chapters of Romans. Only he actually uses it really well to call out both sides of his audience in the Roman churches. Remember that we are in the midst of the hammer dropping in Paul's letter to the Romans. Paul opens this letter by building up his audience. He praises them. He, he talks about their faith and tells them how he prays for them continually. And then he just slams them with a, a series of truth bombs. We, we saw the first part of this play out last week with, with Paul calling out the, the sinful idolatry of the Gentile nations. I want to go back and reread part of that passage. And I want you to take note of the pronouns Paul uses here. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. So they are without excuse. They became futile in their thinking. Their senseless minds were darkened. God gave them up to impurity. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They were filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are gossips. They know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, yet they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. They, 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 they. I mean, just look at all the third-person pronouns in last week's passage. 29 times in just 14 verses, Paul says either they, them, or their. Now, the people Paul is referring to here, the, the referent of all these third-person pronouns, the they in this passage, might not be that clear to us, but it would have been pretty obvious to Paul's audience. He's talking about the Gentiles. The sins Paul points to in last week's passage are all the stereotypical sins and vices that Jews at that time period would have associated with, with Gentiles, with people like us. You know, uh, idolatry, weird sex stuff, and, and all the others. We, we got into all that last week. You can catch that sermon if you missed it. But look at how the pronouns shift when we get to our passage for today, chapter 2. Therefore, you have no excuse. Whoever you are, when you judge others. Do you imagine that you will escape judgment? Do you despise the riches of God's kindness? Do you not realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You see that shift? 
40 times in Romans chapter 2, Paul uses some variation of you, your, or yourself. Second pronoun, uh, second person pronouns, 40 times. The shift here could not be more obvious, abrupt, and dramatic. Paul goes from using they and them, from them being the problem, to you. Now remember, Paul is a Jewish Christian. And moreover, Paul is a Jewish Christian missionary to Gentiles. And he's writing to a church in Rome that is severely divided between Jews and Gentiles. We touched on this a couple weeks ago, but just to kind of recap a bit, a little more than a decade before Paul wrote this letter, the emperor Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome, kicked them out. So all these Jewish Christians who started the first Christian communities in Rome, they were expelled from the city. They were uh, driven from their homes, forced to relocate. Then a few years later, Claudius dies. Nero becomes the new emperor, and Nero welcomes all the Jews. He invites them to return back to Rome so that now he'll have someone he can scapegoat for every little thing that goes wrong in the city. The only problem is, well, in addition to all that Nero stuff, but, but the problem for the church is that while these Jewish Christians were gone, the churches they founded, these communities, grew and flourished under Gentile leadership. And so now you have this power struggle between Jewish and Gentile Christians in Rome. This is the reality that Paul is speaking into. And it's one of those instances where there's merit to both sides. I mean, the Jewish Christians are part of an impressed religious minority. Jews at the time are second-class citizens. They have zero rights. I mean, they can be expelled from their homes at a moment's notice based on the whim of the emperor, for crying out loud. And the Gentile Christians, they're largely viewed by their Jewish counterparts as a bunch of unclean, sinful, irreligious outsiders. So both sides in this scenario face some form of injustice, unfairness, persecution, and both sides are harboring fear, resentment, and mistrust toward the other. And then here comes Paul, right? The, the proverbial bull in a china shop who just barges in and levels the playing field. I mean, he cuts through all the, the BS and just takes out both sides, like right at the kneecaps, and he starts out with the Gentiles. Paul's audience probably could have seen this coming. I mean, he's Jewish, of course, so, so of course he's going to side with the Jewish Christians, right? I mean, playing on anti-Gentile stereotypes, pointing out how they are the problem, they are what's wrong with the world. And, and you can almost hear the Jewish Christians in Paul's audience cheering, right? Like, egg in the mind. Yeah, Paul, you tell them. You, you go get them, right? But then we get to chapter 2. And Paul's pronouns shift from them to you. Who are you to judge? Who are you to condemn them? You are guilty of all the same stuff as them. Oh, gut punch, right? I mean, come on. Paul's actually stealing a move here from the prophets of Israel. If you, if you go back to the Old Testament and read the prophetic books of the Bible, Israel's prophets did this move all the time. They would start out by critiquing all of Israel's neighbors, the pagan nations, the, the enemies of God's people. They'd work the crowd into a frenzy, you know, yeah, you tell them, that's right. 
And then they turn their attention to the Israelites, to God's people, their own audience. And they drop the hammer on them. The prophet Amos does this to incredible effect. You can read the book of Amos if you're so inclined. It's, it's in your Bible. Uh, it's one of the shorter prophetic books. It's only like eight or nine pages in most Bibles. But Amos starts out in chapter one, taking aim at Israel's neighbors. He calls out the Assyrians, the Arameans, the Philistines, Edomites, Ammonites, Moabites, basically all those people groups, all those surrounding nations that Israel was constantly at war with in the Old Testament. And then in chapter two, Amos shifts to Judah and then to Israel. And he spends the rest of the book, eight whole chapters, calling out the sins of his own people pointing out how they are just as wicked, just as sinful, just as evil and unjust as all their enemies. It's a great book. (laughs) Um, Paul does the exact same move here. He uses the end of his first chapter to call out the sins of the Gentiles. And then he spends all of chapter two and a decent chunk of chapter three calling out the sins of his own people. You say, we know that God's judgment on those who do such things is in accordance with truth. Do you imagine, whoever you are, that when you judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you not realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But by your hard and impenitent heart, You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. I mean, come on. That'll preach, right? Yeah. Woo. Paul brings the hellfire and the brimstone. Amazing. Whoo, man. Um, Now, the way this often gets interpreted, like what, what Christians do with this passage, the core takeaway we often draw from this section of scripture is that we're all pieces of crap, basically. We're all sinners, we're all guilty, we're all subject to wrath. God is mad at everyone and God's coming to judge us all. Now, that's true as far as it goes. I mean, I'd probably put it a bit more delicately than that because, you know, God also loves us and that's important. Um, But if that's our core takeaway, if all we're supposed to get from this passage is that people are garbage and God's angry about it, well, then I think we might be missing the point. Because like, correct me if I'm wrong here, but that isn't news to anyone, right? I mean, forget good news. That's not even regular news. You're telling me that people are garbage and do terrible things? Well, yeah, duh. I know that already. I live with people. I am a person, right? And I I do terrible things all the time. People are terrible. That's nothing new. That's not newsworthy. And oh, God's angry about that? God's wrathful and vengeful and coming to judge the world? I mean, come on. Who hasn't heard that one before? Everyone knows the gods are angry with us. That's been like the core teaching of every religion since there's been religion. That's nothing new. 
No, the, the core piece of news in this passage, the, the thing that might have come as a surprise to Paul's audience and is probably still a bit of a shock to some of us, isn't that God's angry and coming to judge the world. The news here is that God's judgment is impartial. There will be anguish and distress for everyone who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. There's something new. See, every religion teaches that God is angry. There's nothing new about that. There's nothing newsworthy there. But then anger is almost always directed at somebody else. Outsiders, non-believers, people of other faiths and cultures, they're the problem. They're the ones God is coming to judge. Not us. No, God, God likes us. God's with us. We're the insiders. We're in the club. We believe the right things. We say the right prayers. We go to the right church. We're in. We're secure. We have nothing to worry about. That was the attitude that was held probably in varying degrees by both Jews and Gentiles in Paul's audience until Paul swoops in and levels the playing field. Stop playing the in and out us versus them game. Stop thinking that God is on your side and coming to judge everyone else. Stop pointing out the sins of others when you do the very same things yourselves. You don't own God. God's not your possession. And if the coming of God, if if the day of God's judgment is a problem for anyone, it's a problem for everyone because God is an impartial judge. Jew or Gentile, in or out, Christian or otherwise, God is coming to judge everyone according to their works, according to Paul in this passage. Now we're going to get to that part about faith and salvation. That's coming. We're going to get there. We'll get to that in like chapter three and beyond. But for now, in this part of the letter here in chapter two, Paul is focused on diagnosing the problem. And I think it's really important not to get ahead of ourselves here. We, we've got to understand the problem before we rush to the solution. See, I think where Christians can go wrong in understanding this part of Romans is that we often assume that Romans chapter 2 is giving us the problem and the solution. Like like this passage often gets used as an evangelistic text, a a message for non-Christians. We're all guilty. We're all garbage. We're all sinners. God is coming to judge the world. And so you'd better join us. You'd better make sure that you're on the right side our side when the day of God's wrath comes. Do you see the problem with that reading? It's like the opposite of what Paul is trying to say. This isn't a message to outsiders to get them to join the club. This is a message to insiders, people already in the club, to snap them out of their holier-than-thou attitudes. Let's not forget who Paul is writing to here. The letter of Romans was written by Paul to Christians. This is not a letter to non-Christians in Rome to try to convert them. 
This is not an evangelistic tract. This is a message intended for Christians. If there's anyone who needs to be converted by this passage, if there's anybody who who needs to be convicted by what Paul is writing here, it's us. Stop playing that insider-outsider game. Stop judging each other and evaluating each other. Stop breaking into teams and talking about who's on the right team. There are no teams. If you're someone who likes to go around talking about how God's angry and God's coming to bring judgment on all the people who aren't like you, if that's you, well, then you'd better watch out. Because according to Paul, God's coming to judge you too. You know, Paul actually sounds an awful lot like Jesus in this passage. People sometimes like to set Paul and Jesus at odds with each other. You know, um, Jesus preached love and grace and inclusion while Paul brought wrath and condemnation. But Paul actually sounds a lot like Jesus in this passage, especially if we consider the way Jesus used to talk to the priests and the Pharisees, the, the religious insiders of his day. You know, the folks who like to draw lines, determine who's in, who's out. Jesus did not mince words with those folks, and Paul doesn't mince words here. The only difference is, by the time we get to Paul's message in the book of Romans, we're now about 25 years removed from the time of Jesus. And the Christians are already doing the same crap Jesus called out in the priests and the Pharisees. Two decades. That's all it took before Christians were doing the same kind of stuff as the people who had Jesus killed. And now here we are, 2,000 years later, often finding ourselves in the same boat, drawing the same lines, playing the same games, treating God like our possession. Telling everyone else that they need to become like us if they want to be safe, if they want to be in. I mean, my goodness, we do it using the very same passage where Paul is telling the Christians in Rome to knock it off. That's some pretty impressive heresy right there. But here's the thing. Paul's not just beating up on his audience for the sake of making them feel like garbage. That is not the point, and that also shouldn't be our takeaway from this passage. Paul is trying to humble his audience and bring them together to remind them of God's impartiality to get them and and to get us to see a reflection of ourselves in the other. To see that we are all in the same boat. We all have the same problem. We are equally guilty, equally fallen, equally in need of God's grace and forgiveness. If we can actually come to see that, if, if, if Christians can see ourselves reflected in the other, to see that our fate is tied to theirs, that should serve to humble us bring us together, maybe even get us to show love and compassion to those who we might otherwise mistrust and condemn. And you know who those people are in your life. And if you don't, I'd encourage you to do some serious introspection and reflect deeply on that question. Whether it's people of another faith or another ethnicity, 
someone with different politics or with whom you have some sordid history, we are all commanded to show love and compassion to those very people. And sometimes the easiest way to get there is to see ourselves reflected in that person. To understand that their fate is our fate. That we are all in the same boat. Let's pray. God, thank you for revealing yourself to us as an impartial judge. Thank you for this challenging message from Paul that humbles us, cuts through all of our efforts to elevate ourselves over others. God, remind us, help us to remember that that we are all in the same boat here. Equally guilty before you, but equally loved. Help us to show love and compassion to everyone. And to remember, Lord, that sometimes we need your grace most of all. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.